Every week we go to the scriptures because it's there that the person and work of Jesus is most clearly revealed. Our sermon this week will be from Esther's chapter, chapter 8, verse 1, through chapter 9, verse 19. It can be found in page 488 through 490 in the Bible provided for you. Preaching this week is Dodds Pengra, one of our pastors. First, let me pray, and then I'll read the scriptures. Gracious God, by your Holy Spirit, we ask that your word would not return void, that you would speak through Dodds and work in our hearts, such that your son Jesus Christ is exalted, and we are encouraged, challenged, and transformed from one degree of glory to the next. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Now hear the word of the Lord from Esther chapter 8, verse 1, through chapter 9, verse 19. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, and on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city... Wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. 
going to switch hands here. Now in the twelfth month, this is chapter 9, now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed... Okay, here we go. Parshandatha, and Dolphin, and Espatha, and Paratha, and Adelia, and Aradatha, and Parmashta, and Arasai, and Aradai, and Vyasatha, the ten sons of Haman, the, sons of Hamadatha, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king, and the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed seventy-five thousand of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the thirteenth day of the month of Adar, and on the fourteenth day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the thirteenth day and on the fourteenth and rested on the fifteenth day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the fourteenth day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Another hand for Adam Seals, everybody. That was wonderful. That was really great. That's very good. Well, peace be with you. Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Sojourn Heights. Welcome to everyone who's joining us online. Uh, my name is Dodds. I'm one of the pastors here. It's very good to be with you today in the Lord's house on the Lord's day. And today we continue our seven-week series through the book of Esther, and we have been exploring during these seven weeks what Esther has to teach us about living faithfully in the midst of a society that increasingly opposes the people of God. The events of the book of Esther take place, as we've said, as the people of God are in exile. They're living at the mercy of the Persian Empire, and God has called his people to submit, to honor, to serve, and pray for this nation to seek the welfare of a foreign empire. But as we've seen throughout our, excuse me, but as we've seen throughout our study of this book, Mordecai and Esther have had to learn to do that faithfully. 
because they began by hiding their Jewish identity and scheming for power and influence, but they were forced out of hiding when a man named Haman convinced the king to permit the annihilation of the Jewish people, their people. As we pick back up this week, we see that Esther's plan has been stunningly successful. Haman has been executed, and Mordecai has taken his place as second in command, which was a very, very big deal. I mean, it meant that he was an extension of the king. And as we said last week, the house of Agag is now being overseen by a Benjamite. Everything is going so well, so it's reasonable to assume that the story should come to a quick close, but we have not yet reached a happy ending because Haman's decree of Jewish genocide is still to be carried out. Haman is dead, but the Jewish people are still facing annihilation. So in order to undo this sordid affair and set things right, Esther and Mordecai are going to have to find a way to undo the decree and deliver the people of God from the lingering forces of evil, from the curse of death that hangs over them currently. Now, as we talked about last week, we're told in chapter 7, verse 10, that following the execution of Haman, the wrath of the king abated, if you remember that. And we talked about how this is actually bad news for Esther and Mordecai and the Jewish people, because if they're going to undo the decree and deliver their people, they actually need the wrath of the king to continue, not, not to lessen or abate. Though Esther has played her hand valiantly, she still has not achieved her true aim. So at this point, she either has to accept that she has failed, retire to the palace where she might be able to save Mordecai's life and her own, or she must go to the king with nothing but the unvarnished truth. Esther must now make a direct appeal to the king, and not only for her own life, as she did a week ago, but for the lives of all her people. She will once again have to muster the courage to enter into the throne room of the king uninvited, which is still an act punishable by death. Let's read chapter 8, verse 3. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. And when the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king and she said, If it please the king, if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman. Now, this is truly a very vulnerable moment for Esther, and, and not just because she's crying. Esther is the king's queen. She is Mother Persia. She's the female embodiment of this empire, and she is openly declaring her allegiance to a different people, the Jews. So to call this risky really is an understatement, but she still asks, I can't bear to see this disaster come to my people, she says. However, at this point, we learn that Haman's original decree is actually 
irrevocable. Apparently in the Persian Empire, once a decree had been signed and sealed, it could not be taken back. As the king says in verse 8, you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So this is very, very important for us to catch. The decree could not be taken back. But the king tells Mordecai and Esther that he's giving them the ultimate carte blanche, permission to use his signet ring to write and sign into law anything that they want concerning the Jews. Now, this sounds like an incredible gift, right? It does. But remember the king's words, an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. In other words, Mordecai and Esther cannot simply write an edict repealing the order to annihilate the Jews. Haman's decree is going to stand no matter what. That day of massacre is coming. It cannot be stopped. Though they can't undo it, they need to undo it. (laughs) So, They need to be very crafty, very careful, very intentional about the wording of this new decree because they need a counter decree that is just as strong as the decree that's ordering a kingdom-wide genocide, a second decree that can somehow contradict, override the first one. They need this decree to serve as a warning that those who sow the destruction of the Jews will reap their own destruction. You see, they they ought to have learned from the example of Haman that the God of Israel does not take kindly to his people being attacked. The prophet Jeremiah says it this way in Jeremiah 30. He says, well, Yahweh says, All who devour you shall be devoured, and all your foes, every one of them, shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall be plundered, and all who prey on you, I will make a prey. You don't mess with God's people. It's a very dangerous business. So verse 11, Mordecai sends letters throughout the empire saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. Okay, so, so now we have the second edict. Now, just for a moment, imagine this. Imagine that you are a lieutenant governor of Turkmenistan and you've recently received a decree from the king to legislate the murder of all the Jews in your province and you begin to sort of gear up and get ready for that day. And then weeks later, another decree comes legislating that the Jews have a right to defend themselves during the very day of killing which you have been preparing in your province. It's kind of a pickle, huh? Kind of a jam (laughs) that we're in. Basically, the empire is gearing up for a one-day, all-out civil war. These people get to kill these people. Oh, and these people get to defend themselves against those people who try to kill them. 
good luck. <laughs> but this is so important. If we were to look back at chapter 3 to Haman's original decree, we could see that the language used here is almost exactly the same as the original decree. But, and this is also very important, the Jews are not permitted to attack anyone. The Jews are merely permitted to defend themselves. This is self-defense. This is not murder. And if you really think about it, the decree is actually designed to discourage violence. Notice this. The counter-decree gives the Jews permission to plunder the goods of those who attack them. Keep that in mind, because we're going to be circling back to that. So with a strongly worded counter-decree that matches the force of the original decree, the governors and officials are now faced with a very difficult decision with two contradictory decrees, both sealed by the king and equal in force. As leaders of their cities and towns, what are they going to choose to do? And it seems as though, it seems as though Mordecai is anticipating their dilemma. It seems as though Mordecai is going to, is, He's actually going to do something to sort of help them make the decision. Let's look at verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and, and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. This is, this is both wonderful and, and, and very surprising. Mordecai leads a province-wide party. And we would think that a pageant like this would happen like after the news that the Jews had emerged victorious from their battle, right? I mean, a ticker tape parade only makes sense when you celebrate a victory that's already been won, right? But as the governors and officials are trying to decide how to interpret these contradictory decrees, probably very confused and worried Mordecai once again parades himself through the capital city. But this is not Mordecai being prideful. This is him being extremely politically and socially savvy. Mordecai is the highest ranking Jew in the empire. Remember, he's an extension of the king. When he speaks, it's like the king's speaking. Mordecai is the highest ranking Jew in the empire and he's wearing royal robes and a golden crown. He is dressed to the nines, which in a way should make it clear to everyone which side the king is really on. Well, what would King Ahasuerus have us do? Oh my goodness, there's Mordecai dancing in the streets. I wonder who the king supports. <laughs> See, if you're a Persian governor with your finger on the pulse of the empire, who are you going to support now? It appears that the king opposes Haman's original decree. It appears that the king is siding with the Jewish people, and those who decide to attack them might be committing 
an act of disloyalty to the king. See, Mordecai is being just as shrewd as Esther was a week ago. And notice what happens to Mordecai as he marches through the city. The people receive him with shouts of joy. The city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. But more than that, verse 17, hear it again. In every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews. Think about that. Many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews. Many people across all of these provinces publicly identified themselves with a group of people who were facing annihilation. And because of the success of these public acts and public displays, when the fated day of massacre finally arrived, the tide had turned at last. Chapter 9. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the sastraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. See, this speaks to the power and attractiveness of hope and festivity and good news in the face of darkness. The power of darkness is nothing compared to the power of light and gladness and joy and honor. So this chapter of the book of Esther directly corresponds to the chapter of history that the church, that we, the church, are currently living through. We are still under, we are still living under a decree of death, but the king, the king, our king, King Jesus, has issued a counter-decree, a decree of life known as the gospel. What if we read verse 17 again like this? In every province and in every city and every nation, wherever the king's gospel reaches... There is gladness and joy for all people, and many from the peoples of the world declare themselves Christians. Sojourn, the mission of the church is a parade, it is a victory march. In the face of darkness and death, we march with light and gladness and joy and honor all of us robed as royalty. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 2. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? 
For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Brothers and sisters, we carry with us a decree on behalf of the one true king. And the whole world is being asked to pick a side. Either to cling to the old decree of death and destruction or to heed the new decree of life and join the parade. This way of thinking about the mission and purpose of the church is beautifully captured by a, a singer-songwriter named Jonathan Seal, who goes by the name Son of Cloud. He has a song called Parade. We have come to bring light to the land that the darkness does hide. We are here to restore years that the locusts have stolen. And the world will hear music in the streets where we gather, and the sound of our sorrows will be traded for laughter. And our sons and our daughters will not bear the shame of their fathers, for the battle has ended and the victor is for us. For the veil was torn away by the sound of our parade. Just pause and sit in that for a minute. The mission of the church is a victory march. It is a New Orleans street band on the promenade. It is a ticker tape parade heralding joy and life and gladness and honor. So as we see in chapter 9, the vast majority of the citizens of Persia have no interest in attacking the Jews. In fact, as we read a bit ago, the governors and officials all throughout the empire agreed to assist the Jewish people. And those who did seek to attack them were easily defeated. The Jewish people are finally delivered. But chapter 9 is begging us to notice something else. Because as we read on three different occasions in verses 10, 15, and 16, we're told that the Jews laid no hands on the plunder. They destroy the sons of Haman but they take no plunder. They defeat the enemies of Susa, but they take no plunder. They defeat their enemies all throughout the empire, but they take no plunder. Why? What, what's going on? Remember that Mordecai's counter-decree explicitly permitted the Jews to take plunder from those who attacked them. So why are they choosing not to do it? Perhaps the author wants to make it clear that the Jews weren't fighting for the sake of material gain. Perhaps the Jews weren't truly in it for the money. But it runs much deeper than that. Because the Jewish people had, if we, think, if we consider the history, the Jewish people had deeper reasons for refusing to plunder their enemies. And those reasons have roots in the book of 1 Samuel that we, that we talked about last week. Because if you'll remember, again, this whole story with this other story going on in the background... Remember that in 1 Samuel chapter 15, King Saul is commissioned by God to blot out the Amalekites who were longtime enemies of the Jewish people and from whom Haman was a descendant. 
In addition, King Saul is explicitly commanded not, not to lay hands on the plunder. But as we read and as we know, as we've talked about, Saul fails and disobeys both commands. He leaves Agag alive and he does plunder the best of the spoil. So here in Esther chapter nine, King Saul's descendants, Esther and Mordecai, are finally blotting out the Amalekites and this time they're being careful to take no plunder. I'm gonna hold that thought, but also consider this. At the beginning of chapter eight, the king gives the house of Haman to Esther and Mordecai. You remember that? Haman is defeated and the plunder of, of Haman's house is given to Esther and Mordecai. So, okay, so which is it? Is it to, are we plundering or are we not plundering? To plunder or not to plunder, that is the question. Well, there's an important distinction to be made. Either, well, Esther and Mordecai did not plunder the house of Haman. The house of Haman was handed over to them. It was handed over to the king, as was the custom following an execution. And from there, the king entrusted the house of Haman to Esther and Mordecai. Remember, Haman is, is that symbolic picture of, of the serpent in this book. Haman represents satanic opposition to the people of God. He plots the destruction of God's people, but his plans are thwarted and reversed, and he literally ends up hanging on a gallows of his own making. So the moment Haman was humiliated and executed, the people of God had been rescued in principle, and all that remained was for that redemption to be walked out in practice. All that remained was for his house to be plundered and the word of redemption to go out to every corner of the kingdom. And the same is true of the victory of Jesus over Satan, whom the Gospel of John calls the ruler of this world. Satan is described as the ruler of this world, but just like Haman, the ruler of this world has now been defeated and replaced through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of King Jesus. There is a new ruler of this world, and he has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. The house of Satan has been handed over to King Jesus, and King Jesus has entrusted that house to his people, the church, to us. Now in Matthew 12 and Mark 3, Satan is depicted as a strong man who must be bound so that his house can be plundered. Satan has been bound so that we plunder his house. That's what the Great Commission is. It is a call to plunder the world for the spoils that belong to God. The Great Commission is an invitation to plunder the house of Satan, to plunder all of the world in the name of Jesus. And we do this by sending out a decree of life and redemption. We do this by sending out the gospel to every corner of the kingdom of darkness. Every part. We are called to plunder the darkness of our own hearts. We plunder the darkness within our church. We plunder the darkness in our neighborhood. 
We plunder the darkness throughout the world. We are reclaiming this world from the former ruler of it. We're subduing this world from the kingdom of darkness and we're giving it back to the king of kings. And how do we do that? What what does our plundering look like? It looks like a parade. A parade in the face of death. We live lives of gladness, joy, honor, celebration, singing, rejoicing, feasting, holiday, Sabbath rest. And as we do that, we are living out in practice a victory that has already been accomplished in principle. That's how important the life and living of the church is, Sojourn. That's how important our individual lives and our collective lives as a body, that's how important it is. As we enter the homes and lives of our neighbors and coworkers with this life, with this parade, it is a picture of the kingdom of God's beloved son advancing slowly but powerfully and inexorably over the smoking ruins of a world already won, already bought, reconciled, and redeemed in principle by the blood of Christ. So in the most wonderful way, our living, our one-anothering, the great commission that we have been given is both a plundering and a renewal of the world. Let's make it a bit more personal. Every time you come before the Lord and repent of your sin and ask him to work in your life, that is plundering and renewal taking place. More of my heart captured. Every time you invite a neighbor to your parish table for a meal, every time you share life with a coworker and build a deeper relationship with them, every time you pray for someone in your family who does not know Jesus, that is plundering and renewal. Those are acts of plunder. That is the son of God taking back what is already his. It is the victory of the cross that is already finished in principle, being walked out in real time and in practice by his spirit in his people. And it is risky. We're taking a risk like Esther and Mordecai, but it's worth every bit of our lives to do so. It is what we are meant to be and to do as God's people. And it's what we've been empowered by God's spirit to do. The decree of death still hangs over us. The curse still casts its shadow over us. But the king has come to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. The decree of death still hangs over us, but the king is on our side. And so we know that his new decree, this decree of life, will defeat darkness once and for all. And therefore, we can begin, we can go forth from here and start celebrating together. Let's pray. Holy and gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We pray that you would take, Lord, these words these calls, 
Lord, your word to us in Esther, that you would, would plant it deeply in our hearts. It would, be go, it would go beyond something that we know. We would receive it as something that we are. We are your people. Lord, once under a decree of death, now freed by the decree of life in Jesus. And we long to live, Lord, in that celebration. Lord, and to welcome others into it. Lord, to live these lives of celebration before the world, to call the world, to invite the world, to be people of hospitality and generosity and kindness and gladness and goodness. And God, open our lives, open our homes, open our mouths. Lord, to live in light of your goodness, to speak the gospel to herald it as a message that is going to every corner of the world to redeem what, what already belongs to Jesus. Lord, what an endeavor. We need your help. You've called us to it, and yet, Lord, we, we need your call. We need your help. We need your spirit. We need your guidance. We need your wisdom. Now that we have your decree, we, <laughs> or we don't only need your decree, we need you with us every step of the way as you, the head of the body, lead the body into places of darkness so that the parade, or the parade can continue and more people will join it. Lord, help us. We need you. We ask it in your name. Amen.